Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. And this is Erin. It's been a while, again, since we've joined the listeners. But we are back tonight and we are talking about a conversation that I honestly don't know if I have heard people talk about um, within the field. And so I'm really, really excited about tonight's show to talk to Julie Melendez, who is the first author of Practical Resources for Talking to Children with Autism about Systemic Racism. So with that said, welcome, Julie. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So Julie, before we get started, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, definitely. So my name is Julie Melendez. And as Denisha mentioned, I'm the first author of the article that we're going to be discussing tonight. I'm a new BCBA, freshly minted. So I'm very excited about this opportunity. And (laughs) thank you. Yes. And um, yeah, I really thought it was such a valuable topic and still is, of course. So I'm I'm very excited. It's pretty awesome that you have a published paper and, you know, on a topic like this, I think is pretty cool. So yes, definitely. Thank you. So um, before we get into tonight's show, this will be a CE eligible conversation. And if you are subscribed to our Patreon, then you should get the link to fill out for tonight's show. You'll answer the questions related to tonight's show and submit for your certificate. So any questions you can email us. And also before we get started, I do want to um, take a moment to shout out the your co-authors too, Julie, if you want to let the listeners know who they are. They're not joining us tonight, but if you, if you want to take a moment and tell us about who helps, you know, develop the paper with you. Definitely. Yes. So the second author on the paper is Isabella Tam. Um, third author is Jasmine Lau, and then finally we have Jay Leung, and they are my colleagues from USC, so we all wrote the paper together soon after graduating. So when you were thinking about, you know, contributing to the science, what made you settle on this topic? What's the foundation or the reason behind writing a paper on systemic racism for autistic children? Well, originally when we wanted to start this paper, it just stemmed from um, a seminar that we were in with our mentor and um, professor at that time, Jonathan Tarbox. And so he was being an ACT seminar for those who wanted to volunteer their time, you know, just even though we had graduated, just keep learning more about ACT and relational frame theory. So we, of course, started talking about this during seminar in June 2020, right when um, there was a lot of protests going on, especially here where I'm located in Los Angeles. So it just started off like a conversation. And I brought up, well, you know, I don't know how to talk about this with the families I'm working with, with the clients that I'm seeing. And I think it's a very difficult topic, you know, to bring up. So I just kind of wanted to talk in general, like, how is everyone feeling uh, about the topic and about how they're dealing with it on their cases? So, um, you know, that, that from that conversation that stemmed into maybe we should write about it because I'm not seeing anything like this exact topic out there uh, for clinicians and for families in the field of behavior analysis, at least. So, so that's how that came about. And originally we wanted to discuss how do you teach children how to react um, to, you know, racist comments, discrimination, but we soon discovered that that is a very, 
uh, difficult chunk of information to outline in one paper. So we first started, how do you even just talk about it, about what they're seeing in the news, about what they're seeing online? So that's how this kind of came about, is really wanting to start with what resources can we give to families right now that they can use immediately after reading our paper, hopefully, um, so that they can even start the conversation with their kids. Um, and it's very scary, but we felt that it was definitely very needed, especially um, at the time when the paper began. Absolutely. Erin, I feel like this paper is important to you too, especially because this is something that you take up with your children, talking to them about systemic issues, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, and I'm just, uh, you know, rescanning this again, because I remember reading it when, um, you know, when it first came out, I think I've actually read it twice, but it was just a, a lot of really relevant things. And, and for, for anybody, really, especially with young kids, and as we get into some of these things, you know, it, it'll make sense. Um, but I just, I, I can't stress those conversations um, happening enough. And, and one of the things that you all talk about in here is that different families are going to have different types of conversations. Like somebody's individual context is going to inform the way that those conversations are had and the content of those conversations. And um, for some families, it will be like identifying racism um, because they don't experience that. And some of them will be like identifying things that are actually occurring to them, you know? And, um, and so I, I think it's just, and even like, I think about like my kids and then like the blended family that, that we have, we have, um, uh, multiple races within, within our family. And so within just the kids. And so it's being able to then have each other kind of identity. It's just, there's so much, um, you know, here. And, and so I can't wait to really dive into this, but yeah, those conversations, they, they have to happen. Definitely. Yes. I'm reminded. So, you know, one of the things I know in my family and it's, um, range too for a lot of folks that I talk to in my community, like we're not um, a stranger to the talk about mm -hmm. systemic racism from very young ages where either we felt um, something ourselves, saw something ourselves, and then our parents had to have that conversation with us. Um, but one part of the conversation that's often left out is how do you talk to white children, children who are also part of families who, um, you know, as the adults may or may not recognize their own part in having privilege um, in their own part in upholding systemic racism. And then how then do they have a conversation with their children? Because white children do need to be uh talked about like they they do need to have uh, this conversation at a very young age and i think that you know the what we'll get into tonight can also help lay the foundation for individuals who are white who have children who they just don't know how to approach the conversation um because i definitely think um communities of color have been having these conversations and i think about you know educators that you know try to make uh children friendly children friendly material for kids to understand and but tonight we're really talking about like breaking it down behaviorally so um julie before we get into like the meat of how to talk to kids can you can you tell us a little bit about the impacts of racism systemic racism on children yes so we start off our paper discussing generally impacts of systemic racism on children. So a lot of what we found when we dove into the literature was that even before children are born, when, you know, when the mother is seeking medical care, uh, black mothers often report that their, their symptoms are, um, are kind of downplayed compared to their white counterparts or they're not fully receiving the same medical care or are given access to the same medical care. Um, so that before a child's even born, you know, that's kind of already in play for them. So um, we look definitely there at how that affects, of course, what kind of medical care they're receiving at birth. And then soon after that, um, just more in general, not specific to autism, but if there are any types of, you know, medical issues or, or concerns like that, some, they are vastly different when you are 
um, a person of color versus when you are a white person. So that is something that uh, we also saw right off the bat very early on. And then, of course, moving into school age, uh, what schools are available to you um, when you're part of those different communities, what um, resources are available to you in school so that that's something that children often are affected by, and then their groups in school. So there are, uh, we we found that children at a very very young age, even preschool, can can notice racial differences among their peers. So that was something that was very surprising when we dove into the literature. Like very, at a very young age, children are made very aware that they are part of a group or part of the other group. So that's something that all children, not just, obviously our paper focuses on children, how to talk to this topic, uh, talk about this topic with children on the spectrum, but all children are faced with those realities. So we briefly cover that at the beginning of the paper, just to give some background information of why it's appropriate and needed to talk about this with children. Yeah, I'm reminded of one of my clients that I worked with um, and they loved me. I loved them. They were a great, a great family. And I remember one day the mother told me that he's the, the child spoke to their bus driver and said, you know, that they couldn't talk to them because they were colored their words. And then I remember the mother telling me that. Um, and so I found that interesting that, one, it was shared with me too. And then one day we were out playing at the park. And once again, this child and I had a great relationship. I had worked with this child for months um, and I was one of their favorite people. And it was time to like start working on some social skills. It was warm outside. So we were at the park and they lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly black, but where we lived, it also was, well, I didn't live there, but where, you know, they lived, there was also a, a large population of white people there as well, but just, it was predominantly black. And so when you go to the playground, you see a lot of black kids and the person was like, I, I can't play with them. And I was like, why? Because they're colored. I'm not allowed to talk to black people. And I was like, I'm black. But then um, one thing that I think of with my kid who also is autistic, you know, sometimes um, some of our kids are very rule governed, right? Have these um, rigid ways of looking at rules. And so when you, when, when they are learning rules about who fits where, who plays with who, like, how does that, like, how do we broach those conversations? And I know, you know, um, that's just one example of me working with a child and experience and things like that. But I think the conversation in general is good to cover because um, there are going to be certain nuances that might seem um, useful for some of our kids on this uh, spectrum. Like I said, like what about our kids that are extremely rigid in terms of rule following? Um, and then they learn something like that from one of their models. And it's, you know, we then have to come behind and, and, and teach. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for like kind of covering like the impacts of systemic racism and and hopefully we can kind of like break down a little bit um, soon on some of those nuanced parts of it. Erin, mm -hmm. I feel like you were having a thought over there. No, I th I, that's one thing that comes to mind is the rule governed part of that, you know, and and um, and how that because I think when when a lot of people might read the title of this, they're like, well, isn't this just like talking to any other kid? You know, it's like, you, you know, but there's specific things um, that might we, that we need to pay attention to when talking to, to um, you know, depending on if somebody is very rule governed or not. Um, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids who can easily pick up on like very nuanced uh, social issues like that, you know, but then there there can be others that that just um, like like you're saying, Denisha, with with somebody that you worked with. So I just think that. That, and I love hearing examples like that. So if you'll have have those, because I don't think I actually have any, um, you know, but I don't have as much clinical experience as most people. So. Okay. So before we get into it, um, you already kind of started to mention too, 
Julie, about how young kids are when they start to notice. And I, I do remember reading a, um, a paper about like there was they started to study with elementary school children who were rule governed. They I remember there was one that I read about a kid who wouldn't go to sleep next to another kid because they were black. Um, and this was a rule that they were also following, not autistic, but um, they were just, you know, the the um, the literature just it was covering development of racism. But from even like a few months old, if I'm remembering the literature, that's where they start. They start to notice the children noticing like some of those differences, even though they're not acting towards those differences. But um, can you talk a little bit? about, um, you know, how we can start to approach this conversation from like for the family members who are like, I don't even like talking about this with adults, right? Because when we start to bring up topics of race, some people clam up. Some people say, you know, not supposed to talk about it. Um, And then, you know, obviously we all have our work to do. Other people have work to do in it for a different reason. But when it's really hard for you to even broach the conversation with your own peers, how do you then as a parent or a caretaker, or caregiver, approach this conversation with a child? So I think one of the things that when we were writing this paper, we were looking at is In general, people avoid, they engage in avoidance behaviors when they're in an uncomfortable situation, when they don't want to, uh, it doesn't even have to be confrontational, but just they don't, they don't want to talk about a certain topic. So we were very aware of that before we started writing the paper. So especially this particular topic of systemic racism, which some people, adults don't fully understand as well. So, um, so yeah, we looked at the literature and we wanted to know what, how do people kind of prepare in general for how to talk about difficult topics? Um, and it can be anything from uh, asking for a raise. Um, when someone makes you uncomfortable, how do you approach that? Um, so it could be anything like that. So uh, we looked at that and some of the things that we found were that uh, it's always good to um, not approach it from like have the uh, oftentimes we have like the conversation in our head already how it's going to go so don't approach it that way as as hard as it is um, you know try to go with an open mind and think um, you know what potential things may come up but don't really have like a script because I think that is where we get stuck and then we'll just like say never mind I'm just not going to talk about it because it didn't go as planned so that's one of the things that we found Uh, was helpful, you know, have kind of like a bulleted list, so to speak in your head, but don't, don't panic when it doesn't go the way you thought, Um, or maybe even have like a backup plan, like, okay, if the individual or the child asks me about um, something that I wasn't expecting, um, how will I approach that I could, some people like panic, like I said, and just kind of shut down. Uh, and you can even say, and I, I, we mentioned in the paper, you can say like, you know, I'm not really sure about that. If, if the kid asks you, yeah, I know parents don't typically don't like to say that sometimes. So you can say, you know, I, I don't really know what the answer is. And I, uh, let me get back to you, you know, let's think about it more. We can talk about it later. Um, so that's totally fine. Uh, in, in a difficult conversation, you can always go back and broach the topic, um, because otherwise, you'll either shut down most of the time or um, you kind of panic and don't know what to say and then say something that you didn't mean necessarily. Um, And then you're thinking back at it hours later, uh, thinking of how you should have said it. So that's one of the things when you're having a difficult conversation to do, you know, have an open mind, think of contingency plans, basically. And um Another thing is to think about who you're talking to. So in the example I gave, like asking for a raise. So obviously you're going to be talking to your boss. But when you're talking about systemic racism to a child, obviously they don't understand fully the same things that you do, depending on the age of the child. So you need to be aware of of who your audience is. You need to be aware of what they know. And we talk about it later in the paper, but how to relate these important conversations to them 
um, as we do when we teach them, you know, in behavior analysis, you relate it to their interests, you relate it to something that they fully grasp, something that they like, something that they will be able to uh, wrap their minds around. So that's what you want to do when you're having a difficult conversation in general. One thing that you said in there about, um, you know, being able to say, like, I don't know, I think that is such a powerful tool. Um, there's a lot of, um, there might be a lot of private events that people experience when they don't know something, especially when someone like your child looks up to you, or maybe you have your own rules about parenting or the mm-hmm. being the adult in the situation. And I'm supposed to be able to guide them and I can't answer this question. What kind of parent am I? What kind of adult am I? What kind of accomplice am I? What kind of, you know, for folks who still take on the allyship, what kind of ally are them and are they? And, but to be able to say, I don't know, or I still struggle with um, this myself. Let's learn together, right? Mm-hmm. And serving as a model for the child that exudes the humility in that way. Like you're not, you're not always going to know this thing, and that's part of it. Like systemic racism isn't for one person to know all the ins and outs because one person didn't create it and one person doesn't uphold it. And so I don't really know about this topic, but this is a good opportunity for us to kind of sit and learn and make it fun. Like you said, you know, where did, you know, if a child says like, where did um, racism come from? Hmm, Like where does it date back to, right? Or like, maybe that's like a a reading project or maybe that's like, a you know, we're drawing it together. I'm getting on your strategies part, but um, but I, I really do like that part of just like normalizing the unknown and just recognizing that there's always going to be an area for growth and your kid can benefit from seeing you struggle with that, but also seeing you be um, vulnerable and honest with the way that you respond to them when they stump you a little bit. Yeah, like like a model of, of humility, you know, and it's the, the way that we kind of take it is like, you know, this is a, a learning process and it's like we, we, we go, it's like a journey that we're taking together. So it's like we'll, we'll sit down and do like educational things together where it might be something. So it's it's kind of like taking the power. I think that that's the thing is like these embedded power dynamics that are within like parenting. And it's like the parent has to be the know-all and has to impart all of this wisdom and knowledge onto their kid. And and um and that's that's not the case you know you you can learn together and i think that the experience at least that i've had um learning with my my kids has been um pretty phenomenal so it's a an experience that i would encourage other parents to to take on as well yes i think it's like as you said aaron it's it's very powerful tool and for you to be able to learn together and if if a parent, the way we saw it, if a parent is just um, waiting, I guess, for them to be an expert on this, it's not going to happen because there's always learning to be done. There's always, um, you know, new new things that you're you're learning you're learning about as you as you move through learning about systemic racism and, and racism. Uh, so you're never going to be fully prepared, I'll tell you right now, for this conversation. So I think just kind of jumping into it is what we wanted parents to do with the paper is not feel like, okay, I know everything about this topic. Now let me jump in. But just, you know, slowly start building that conversation. And it doesn't even have to be a specific um, – well, it should be a specific conversation. But you can even start by just modeling what you want them to do or how you want them to behave or incorporate. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but incorporating more things, um, you know, during your family time in the games that you play in the books that you read. So um, it it can be any, anything like that. We just want to open the door for that. I'm thinking of like, I don't know the title of it, but something like raising an anti-racist baby or something like that. Um, some something near that Mm -hmm. but I think really what that gets at is embedding it into the day-to-day like the practical um you know typical conversations the typical things that you do because racism is everywhere it's a it's part of the fabric um and so if that's the case then 
having this conversation isn't just a one and done. It's a continual thing. And Aaron, you talked about it being the journey and, and we're about to, you know, talk a little bit about some behavior analytics stuff, but, you know, it being part of a value system for us to just continue to do that thing. Um, I remember for me, I've, I've always, if my friends, they've known me for over a decade, they know that's who I've been. <laughs> so, but one of the things when I've always just felt like this work is for all of us. And so not always, but, you know, at least for college hood, adulthood, um, but like this, this work is for all of us to do. And um, my friends used to be like, well, you know, I didn't study psychology like you, so I don't understand it. And I was just like, I didn't get this from psychology. Like, what are you all talking about? <laughs> you know, like this. Um, and so sometimes it's easy to say, like, this is for someone else to do. Like, this isn't for me as a parent who's not, you know, uh, in the psychology field or who's not an activist or who's not a behavior analyst. Um, but this really is for any person that is living and breathing living and breathing and part of the environment in which these systems um, operate, which is every single last one of us. Um, and so we all have our role to play and the pathway to um, breaking down, destroying, fully um, getting rid of systemic racism is not just going to be done in a very linear fashion. It's not going to be done in one way. It's going to be done in a multitude of ways because there are a lot of us that are doing that work um, and doing it complementary. And, and part of that is instilling, you know, instilling those values into the next generation to continue to 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 break down these um, systems. So, you know, talking about the role, right? our roles that we play. Um, Julie, can you talk a little bit about the role of behavior analysis and behavior analyst? Yes, definitely. So in behavior analysis, as we know, we are um, very keen on teaching new concepts and um, teaching um, the skill of concept formation, basically. So racism is a concept that can definitely be addressed using behavior behavior analytic principles. So uh, we specifically looked at multiple exemplar training and using generalization techniques, uh, along with some experiential examples, uh, to teach kids about systemic racism. And so, you know, basically teaching what is and what is not. And a challenge that we found at, as we were writing the paper is that um, oftentimes you you gear more towards talking about racism and not systemic racism. So that was, that's a very clear discrimination that you need to make when you're, of course, talk about both, but in our papers, we focus on systemic racism. So um, how is it, you know, at a systems level affecting um, this group or, or these groups, but, um, and not only uh, on an individual day-to-day level um, as of specific actions, basically. So, so by using the multiple exemplar training, we're able to give um, various examples of what is and what is not um, systemic racism specifically. So using uh, the generalization techniques that we have in the field, that will definitely help children um, find multiple examples and, and see novel examples of what systemic racism looks like. So that's why we felt behavior analysis definitely has a place in this conversation. Um, and then for the parents, we looked at acceptance and commitment training to help them even approach this conversation because it is very aversive sometimes. And a lot of parents engage in avoidance behaviors um, of even talking about this topic. So we think that behavior analysis can help not only the children learn the concept, but the parents as they address the topic. I think that's an important thing to note is like, it's not just how to have the conversation, but the, the willingness, like there's a whole emotional side of, of this and any white person that's done their work and learning about systemic racism. Um, it's, it's hard enough just for, for them to have conversations among their peers, much less, um, you know, kids that, um, that are likely to ask really hard questions, you know, it's like, um, and, and, and to give them answers that, that they're, that they accept and, 
you know, that are good enough for them. Oftentimes it just continues to lead to more and to more questions. And, um, but I think that that, that willingness and, um, and act has a lot of application. I think, um, you know, that, that will aid in that willingness part. Julie, can you, for our listeners who may not be aware, I know that act has gotten, uh, good publicity over the past two years for sure. But, you know, it's been running way longer, but I do feel like just in the online space, ACT has has gotten more um, popular for behavior analysts. But for those who are listening who are not aware, can you just give an overview of what ACT is? Yes. So acceptance and commitment training um, or ACT is uh, basically uh, a set of processes that work together um, so that an individual facing um, difficult private events is is more able to to go towards those ev- those private events so that way they are not uh, engaging in experiential avoidance so um, just trying to avoid feeling sad or scared or nervous but um, connecting those things to um, values that you have and things that matter to you. So that way you engage in those behaviors and then you can access those, those values and, and come, come to terms with um, actions that you want to take. And do you want to tell them a bit about the, I guess the hexaflex, the six core processes of ACT that might be useful? Yes. Because there also was a part in your paper where you were able to kind of break down a few of, well, you broke down um, the processes of ACT for the parents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being able to kind of use some of that. So, um, you know, can we talk about how each process might be useful for people who are struggling with this, um, having the conversation? And, uh, you know, I, from from the paper, you know, you really did touch on a part that I feel like was important because, you know, like we said, like, how does one have a conversation if they've been avoided, engaging in um, avoidant behaviors themselves? So um, are you able to kind of walk us through some of those um, exercises that you, you used in the paper? Yeah, definitely. So um, as you mentioned, the hexaflex, so those are the six processes that work together um, to increase the psychological flexibility. So moving towards um, things that matter to you and are of value and, and lead you toward, towards um, things that you value. So those include acceptance, um, your values, uh, diffusion, selfish context, committed action, and present moment. Um, so Denisha, you wanted to know, like specific exercises that we talk about in the paper. So some of the things that we discuss is mindful breathing. Um, so really just directing yourself to the present moment and um, taking taking a moment to um, think about yourself in the present now. So don't think about what's going to happen in the future when I talk about this scary topic or don't think about what you've done in the past that maybe you didn't broach it well or or you're thinking about your own behaviors, but really think about what's going on right now. So mindful breathing, I'll just review it briefly. Um, The things that we recommend is to, you know, close your eyes, relax, and feel yourself, your physical body present where you are. Um, Take a deep breath, and then hold your breath and feel what's around you. Think about what you smell. Think about what you feel, where you're sitting. Is it soft? Is it warm? Um, Is it kind of a hard chair? You know, think about those things that are going on right now. And then slowly exhale and relax your body, and then open your eyes. So that's very quick exercise. It doesn't have to take very long, but just kind of reconnecting to where you are right now uh, can really help with the stressful situation of talking about systemic racism because um, you could um, you're, you could find that your mind starts racing and you start thinking about, okay, what could they say? Or what if I say something wrong? Or what if I... I uh, mess up what I'm trying to say, but instead of thinking about that, using the mindful breathing exercise can really help you ground yourself so that you're a little bit more calm and that you're able to think about what's going on right now and not what's going to happen or what happened in the past. Um, so that's one of the present moment exercises that we 
that we discuss and uh, another um, processes that I, I just mentioned was acceptance. So one of the one of the exercises that we recommend in the paper is uh, the quicksand metaphor. So uh, acceptance is all about not trying to avoid what's going on, just moving towards um, moving towards those kind of uncomfortable thoughts. So um, yes, talking about systemic racism is uncomfortable for some people, for most people. Uh, but the quicksand metaphor really helps you think, uh, and, you know, imagine you're in quicksand. And as I think most of us know uh, from watching movies and hopefully have never experienced it yourself. But um, when you're in quicksand, the more you struggle, the faster you get sucked into the quicksand and you and you feel stuck and then you panic because, you know, you can't move. Um, and you you feel even worse than when you started. So with the quicksand metaphor, you know, think about you struggling and avoiding those uncomfortable thoughts. Think about you saying, "Well, like I don't want to do this. It's just it's too hard. I don't I don't really feel comfortable. Maybe it's not the right time. Um, maybe when they're older, I'll talk about it with them, or you know, something like that." You're thinking about all these thoughts, but the more that you're trying to fight those negative thoughts, uh, it's the it's uh, the more difficult it's going to be for you to address those topics, most likely. So if you're just able to take some deep breaths, relax, and slowly think about how you're going to approach the topic, then you're going to be better prepared for um, doing it, actually just going out and doing it. And you might feel still scared, still nervous, still uncomfortable, most likely, but um, you're moving closer to things that are of value for you. And you wouldn't be having this internal struggle if you didn't think that talking about systemic racism was important. So that shows you hopefully that that's something of value to you. That's something that you want to teach your children about or, or teach your peers about. So um, that just kind of brings you more in line with, you know, if I do this, I'm going to feel scared. I'm going to feel uncomfortable, but it's really important. So I'm going to just do it anyways. That's the part there is like, I really like the quote, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway. And I really, um, you know, have adapted that um, for myself is that it's okay to struggle. Uh, it's okay to feel as, um, you know, this is hard, but it's that struggle in which gets us buried in that, that quicksand, like you said. So I, I really, I really like the metaphor um, that you mentioned. Yeah, I, th I think too, like, you're saying that, that you can find any reason to avoid this, especially in talking with kids and especially in talking um, with autistic kids. It's, you know, that you could come up with any number of excuses as to why you wouldn't even want to um, approach this topic. And I think that that um, like that, that leaning into that part is really important. Um, and and it's not just that it's, it's the, again, going back to the willingness part, because I think like you're talking about, there's any number of ways to approach this. And it's not like you have to, to, to go in and have this conversation and full on, like explain the whole history of systemic racism and, um, and, and try to get them to this full understanding. But it's, you know, it's like, what little step can you take in the, in the direction of that, that ultimate goal in alignment with that value? Um, instead of focusing on the number of ways that you could avoid that because it'd be so easy. Yeah. And I think, you know, once again, like what happens if I get it wrong? Right. Oh, what happens if I get it wrong? It's like, then that leaves room for you to even expand past the conversation. Like why would someone get it wrong? Right. And sometimes Aaron knows this about me, Julie, but in my head, I start to think about these metaphors. And then as soon as I start trying to say them, they don't make sense. But <laughs> I'm thinking about like people <laughs> in COVID, you know, this whole time we tried to do things the right way, but some of us still ended up infected, right? Um, I knock on wood because, you know, I'm very grateful that I have not been. But some of us, you know, have tried to do the right things. You heard people say like, you know, I was, I was careful. I didn't do anything. I did everything right. And yet still I got infected. And like, 
systemic racism, racism is an infection. It's a stain of humanity. And even you thinking that you're doing things right or trying to do all the wrong things, it's so embedded and ingrained in our environments. You're going to get it wrong. Like, you know, it's, it's bound to happen. And so um, that wasn't as bad as a metaphor. I don't think. I hope that made sense to you all. But um, so, yeah, no, I think um, being willing to get it wrong and being willing to show your kid and tell your kid why at any point you're going to get it wrong is because you've been infected, like you've been impacted by the same things. Like and I always say we all drank the same Kool-Aid. So, of course, I'm going to get it wrong. Um and you're going to get it wrong, too, no matter how much I try to teach you, no matter how many books you read, how deeply, um, deeply well studied you are, how much uh, pedagogy you've in, in, in uh, adjusted, you're going to get something wrong. We're not going to all know the same information. So, yeah, if we're able to be if that's able to be part of the acceptance process. Um, all right. And that was a little bit of diffusion, I think. A little bit of selfless context, which is why, you know, like you said, they all play into each other. Okay, Julie, I think we've talked a lot about the act part for the for the parents and the caretakers. If you don't mind kind of walking us through then for our for the kids, you talked about like the multiple exemplar training, right? And you talked about mm-hmm. discrimination training. But one cool thing that I felt from that I really liked as part of your paper were the tables that were included, right? So can we uh, spend some time going through those for our kids? Yeah, definitely. So table uh, one, if you have the paper, um, or the first table that we talk about is the multiple exemplar training. And uh, the way that we split the tables up is based on um, the child's verbal ability. So, of course, children are all over the spectrum and they all have different abilities. So we anticipate that the parents who are broaching the topic of systemic racism with their child, that the child has some understanding of what, um, uh, excuse me, some uh, language ability and able to understand a topic like that. So obviously we point that out in the paper that it's up to the parents' discretion, of course, uh, when they broach this topic and if they want to talk about this with their child, depending on their individual circumstances. So um, we we made it that way. So that way um, parents of children that have different types of abilities can hopefully relate this to their child. So in the multiple exemplar training examples that we gave, uh, we focused on some very um, big topics. So we talk about redlining, um, the healthcare system, criminal justice, and segregation. So um, if you want, I can just give a couple of examples from each of the category, and then you can kind of see the difference between um, what, uh, talking to a child about this topic that maybe has a lower verbal ability versus someone who has um, can understand very complex uh, language. So uh, like for healthcare, something very simple that you can explain is that doctors don't treat black people the same way that they treat white people. So that's obviously a very general statement um, that can be um, can be can be generalized uh, across different areas. But um, if you're speaking to somebody with a higher verbal ability, you know you can give a more in-depth examples. So related to healthcare as well, but you could say something, um, the statement we offer in the paper is that doctors do more research that's helpful for um, white individuals and then less research that's helpful for black individuals. So uh, because of this, white people are able to get um, the newest treatment and technology. So of course, you can even dive deeper in, in that section there. But uh, we're just trying to offer some suggestions of what you could say um, across different ability levels. So that is that's obviously a very broad statement um, that you can adjust how you want it. But we just want to make it clear to to the children that you know there's unfair treatment. Generally, that's the very common. You know, we understand that. But why is there unfair treatment? Well, and 
And I think you've talked about it before, you know, on your podcast is that a lot of the research being done, uh, not just in autism, but a lot of the research being done in general in the medical field related to healthcare is with white individuals. So they are really the population that's being targeted. Their um, symptoms can be different across different groups. So that's not really being examined. Um, so you can, you know, obviously go deeper there. But that's one of the examples that, that you can give. Um, also, um, for redlining, um, you can say that the people in charge um, did not allow Black people to live in some areas. So that's, again, very general statement. You know, who are these people in charge? Well, that's something that you can talk about um, for maybe someone who has a higher understanding of this topic. Um, and then we also offer like a middle ground moderate statement. So uh, again, for redlining, you know, the people in charge did not allow black people to buy houses uh, to live in, cer in certain cities. Um, so that's more specific to uh, what exactly the process was. And then for someone with a higher verbal ability, you could say that the government forced black people to live in neighborhoods that were not given as much money. Um, and then moving even into, you know, the the availability of loans and the availability of, of resources for those families to move into white communities. So those are just some some of the yeah. examples that we touch on um, at a systems level. You know, how are people of color set up to not succeed as much as their white counterparts? Yeah, definitely. Even when you said that, like the availability of loans, even the, like the interest rates of loans, mm -hmm. right? Um, when there is a, a, a loan given. Um, so then you also like included some ways to have the conversations. One of the one of the ways that you included reminded me. So I, I used to do workshops a lot um, around teaching all oppression, um, all the components of oppression um, and all the systems and how they work together. And so one of the ways that you outlined in your paper kind of reminded me of one of the um, one of the activities that we used to do is called the hunger banquet. So you were talking about unequal distribution mm -hmm. and um, we did like very similar um can you, you know, I don't want to talk about how we did it before you, can you talk a little bit about how you um, wrote that and like kind of what was your thought process of thinking about how do we break this down for kids? Because I do think that we're not going to get rid of this stuff via didactic like ways of teaching. Like we're just not like, I, you know, I, for, for any of us, for myself, like I, I think that there are so many geniuses that exist and have existed. Our ancestors were extremely smart. There are so many black people that provided liberation pedagogy and, you know, the blueprint that, so, you know, it's there, we don't listen, but I think a lot of part of this of getting free is really resting in the experience, the experiential. And so I love mm -hmm. that you put that part in there. Um, but can you talk to us about like why you felt that was important to include in the paper? So the experiential examples were something that we wanted to do right off the bat, because as you said, you know, just talking about it and, and providing those types of, um, you know, concepts um, just verbally to, to a child is, important. It's definitely valuable, but it's not going to get the point across. And so um, this was an area where we thought a lot about because we, of course, as we mentioned in the paper, are not trying to say that the examples that we provide are anywhere near what is actually experienced, you know, by uh, people of color. But uh, we just wanted to give some some guidance as far as things that you can do. So uh, we do recognize that definitely that it's nowhere near the same thing, of course. Um, but the experiential examples really kind of force the child to really understand um, how even a fraction of what um, someone would feel when they're faced with these types of um, systemic setbacks, when they're set up um, by nothing that they did, but just set up to not um, succeed or be like another group um, of their peers. So in the unequal distribution example that we provide, uh, we just mentioned to 
um, share some sort of food. It could be like pizza or something like that for kids. And you just share it unequally. So maybe um, this child over here gets um, two slices of pizza for lunch, but then one only gets one. And um, that's just the way it is. And we base it on some sort of arbitrary um, feature. So we offered things like height, like, okay, maybe the shorter kids are going to get two slices of pizza, but the taller kids are only going to get one. And so that kind of brings the child into somewhat of, of a, an understanding of, well, why is that happening to me? That's not fair. I, you know, I didn't do anything. I'm just as, as a good student or I'm just as a good person as this other kid. So why am I being punished um, just for my height when there's nothing I can do about it? So that's something that really we wanted to bring in because it, it kind of, sets the tone for that conversation, sets the stage for the parent to have that conversation as to, well, that's very, you know, somewhat similar as to what um, other people experience just because of the color of their skin or the way they look. Um, They are just like you and I, but the way it's set up for them is that they are going to get the short end of the the stick. They are going to get the one slice of pizza, whereas you maybe... um, because you are of a lighter complexion or you're white are going to get two slices of pizza. And so do you think that's fair? Well, most likely the child will say no. And then that kind of bring their awareness to it. Like, Oh, it's kind of like that. Okay. So, um, so we offer a few examples um, about uh, games, leadership examples and exclusion as well. But those are, uh, we just want to, bring it to the child's awareness that that is kind of what it feels like. I see like, um, you know, that that's part of that, like perspective taking like opportunity there. Um, and one thing too, it's just like, and, and this is the interesting part too, of like racism and how it manifests and how folks who benefit, who got the two slices of pizza may not see an issue because it's not necessarily that this other person for any arbitrary reason didn't get any. They just didn't get as much, right? And so it's like for some for some people even to like, I think about the internalization of racism and like, well, I got something, thanks for my one slice, right? You know, and, or they got, they at least they're eating. Um, and so I also see like from that perspective, how it doesn't seem like, um, for for one or two of the ways, not necessarily for kids, but just in general, when I hear people talking about like, well, you know, we had a black president, right? Yeah, well, how many other white presidents did we have before this time? So mm-hmm. everything now seems fair because <laughs> you at least had one. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, it's interesting. I used to, I think the, the hunger banquet and the way that we did it, I mean, you literally have some people that are sitting there with their like steak and potatoes and then other people that got their like, pork and beans and then other people that's like a few like droplets of rice or whatever it is and um start to take it in perspective a few things like um you know obviously we know about um food insecurity in the united states right and then um for for people who can kind of consider what um those being without looks like for them and then take that perspective of okay i'm sitting over here eating good and they're eating rice or maybe they don't maybe they don't take you know that into consideration if they're sitting there with the steak steak dinner because right you got a steak dinner anyway so in a roundabout way yeah and i think i think that that um that that this part of like including like how to put it into gameplay and how to have the conversation through gameplay i remember um and for those who are um who are listening, who don't know, like I served over the, the guest editor for this paper. And I do remember reading it too. And it's like, oh man, like, you know, this is a tough conversation for kids, right? Um, you imagine a kid that is part of this um, experience that gets the one slice of pizza and, you know, I already am having issues with rules and I don't understand why, like I didn't get this pizza. And like, how do we, continue to like teach but maintain the dignity of them at the same time while like teaching and and being able to kind of like shape up the skill 
Um, and so I guess knowing your learner too is like, so you're not like throwing them into like this full like meltdown just mm-hmm. because like, you know, some people paint us as mad scientists, right? Um, and so, but there's a, it's good learning that can take place for the children that are um, ready and able to um, experience um, some of these examples that you gave here. So I think they're really, really useful. You know, Denise, you brought up like how, how that, um, how that kind of translates into the things that you hear constantly. And it's like, yeah, we had a black president. I think that that, like that at least kind of mentality is, is always there. And that's something that I've heard a lot recently is, um, are kind of things like that phrases like that are very similar phrases like at least it's a start or it's a start and baby steps or these kind of things and um and it's it's almost like it it, when it has been said to me in in relation to certain things it feels like being said like be grateful for this handout that you're getting like at least you got this or and even when they it's 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 well-intentioned and i get that um but it doesn't feel good. And I think that that's the thing that you're talking about in in terms of perspective taking is like for those kids that can, that would benefit from, from a tangible activity like this, that it's that, it's that experiential activity that, that is going to allow, instead of just talking about something, it's how can we actually show up and have them feel that. And of course, like everybody can have pizza at the end, but it's like, I mean, this experiment was done. Who, who was the, the elementary school teacher that, Jane was her name? Yeah, the, Jane. the blue-eyed, brown-eyed mm-hmm. experiment. Yeah. Um, and I know she's she. There, there's a lot of criticism for for certain things that she that she says, um, and almost like some colorblindness statements and things like that. But I think it, that this kind of goes back to to that um, experience that that those kids had to some degree is like experiencing life based on a physical attribute you know, that, that, um, and just how that changes behavior too. It's just really interesting. And I think those tangible activities can sometimes be so helpful to gain perspective. Right, Erin. And actually that goes back to, as we said in the beginning, when children at a very young age realize these things, and it's because of these types of, of, um, benefits that some children are getting versus their peers. So, that this is the reason why they're so aware that there are differences between one group versus another is because of um, could be subtle things like that, but um, bringing these examples into you know the the resources that parents have and hopefully educators can in, embed as well. Uh, we just kind of wanted to give a starting point as to how you can kind of uh, bring this into your home and make it your own. You know, we just offer some sort of recommendations, but of course, make it your own and, and see how your learner, your child is going to benefit from it. So, you know, as we wrap up our conversation for today, is there anything else that you would like to leave the listeners? Uh, what we like to do at the end of every show is to give a piece of homework assignment um or to give a homework assignment or two or three and so obviously for the listeners homework assignment is to read the article which is going to be linked in the show notes um but julie do you have anything else that you would think might be useful for our listeners to do in relation to your paper yes actually i think that something that i your listeners might find very challenging but is going to be extremely valuable is to just notice and just kind of be aware when you avoid talking about um, difficult, you know, conversations. Um, it doesn't have to be about systemic racism. Of course, that's something we can always talk about. But just kind of be aware that when you shy away and try to avoid those things, uh, most of the time, as I mentioned earlier, is why you're feeling uncomfortable is because it's really important to you, but you're nervous to talk about it. So I think kind of just recognizing those moments and then um you know you know not to make you feel bad of course but just so you're aware that you know maybe this is something that I want to uh dive a little deeper into and kind of learn more about because we're always learning and and sometimes um 
for a topic like systemic racism, you know, I feel like, well, I'm way behind on knowing anything. So I don't really want to all of a sudden dive in. So I think even making a small step, if you can, in something that's a value to you, um, be aware that the reason why you're probably feeling kind of scared is because it's so important to you. So I think that's something to, to remember. And I hope your listeners do it so that way they can hopefully move closer towards something that matters to them. I love that. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much, Julie, for tonight and coming and chat with all of our listeners and teaching them quite a few things. They got, you know, what is ACT? They got, you know, how to talk to kids and in, in very concrete and tangible ways. So I think that this show is is going to be a staple for the platform that people should come back and listen to and re-listen um, to get to catch some of those gems that you dropped tonight. So thank you. Thank you. Of course, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm a fan of the show. So it's an honor. We're fanning you. <laughs> Awesome. All right. So that's our show. Thank you all for being beautiful humans with us. We'll see you next time. It's Tanisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. <laughs>